the subject that that I wanted to use um, this particular moment uh, to discuss has to do with um, a number of projects that I've been working on over the course of the past few years to reconsider translation as a problematic through which to engage Sharia concepts in global circulation. Not understood as the study of textual jurisprudence or institutions of the legal, but in the modern and contemporary period as translative work across multiple registers and toward a diversity of audiences. And so I've taken the invitation to consider ethics here in two ways. Firstly, to tease out the ways in which understanding translation as praxis, very parsimoniously as doing, might provoke collaborative inquiry in Islamic legal studies, to seek out translation work in text, between texts and institutions, and across institutional logics. And secondly, um, and most likely most of this particular piece will get worked out in discussion, um, I want to raise the question of translation as work, as a particular challenge in this moment um, for Islamic legal studies as a scholarly practice. And so I, I'm, I'm going to be discussing translation as practice at three registers and three scales. The first of which is semantic translation. The second of which is institutional translation understood here as the making of legibility between text and institutions. And the third is imperial translation, which often results in the conflation of previously distinct categories and terms in the process of inter-imperial competition, comparison and lawmaking. Because my own work looks back and forth between sites of empire and colonialism from the 1850s to the post-colonial Muslim state, I see translation across power imbalance in the context of struggles for authority and sovereignty underwritten and informed by colonial violence as well as opportunity. And so the rest of the talk will illustrate these processes through a discussion of one um, in semantic translations, a specific instance of semantic translation in the political present, in the term Dawlat uh, al-Muslima, Muslim state. And then I'd like to discuss um, the making of colonial legibility and jurisdiction by Muslim judges working in the courts of British India around 1880. And finally, in the construction of the category of personal status um, as an inter-imperial universal um, that conflates Ottoman, British and French imperial legal concepts. The immediate provocation for this question came for me um, in the form of an invitation to write an author's preface to the Arabic translation of my book, the politics of Islamic law, local elites, colonial authority, and the making of the Muslim state. That was published in English in 2016, and we worked on um, an Arabic translation uh, in 2017 uh, for a publication in 2018. Um, and I learned a great deal, both from um, the publishing house as well as from um, the translator for the text, um, but I also learned a great deal about the process. Um, and so this, this first um, piece about semantic translation owes itself to that collaborative work. Analytic choices made and signaled in English um, needed to be signaled differently in Arabic, obviously. 
but for two reasons. Firstly, because of existing conventions in contemporary Arabic debates on these subjects, but secondly, also because the genealogy of concepts runs through different associative and institutional terrains in Arabic and English. Um, and because the English text worked on um, the making of authority between the colonial state um, and um, local contexts and local elites in Malaya, India and Egypt, it was precisely um, the area of uh, the translation of text into institutions, um, of particular categories of law into other categories of law, um, into kind of semantic entanglements between um, some normative and authoritative um, uses of legal terms and others that caused us the most problems. And so this piece is um, from, the, from the Arabic preface. The aim of this book was to work towards historicizing the entanglement of concepts such as Islamic law um, and um, legislation, Sharia and um, textualization and reification and codification. Um, and so it, it was also to argue for an analysis of these entanglements in institutions as well as in the repertoires of action and language available to Muslims in the world today. It was precisely this difficulty that we faced when it came to translation. As discussion about an appropriate title, just the title, um, progressed, it became clear that we were facing not simply a problem of translation, but a series of analytic questions and decisions surrounding the ability of concepts and meanings to travel across distances and languages and through time. And while, of course, you know, um, we spent a great deal of time thinking about the, um, the chapters themselves, um, the example of the, of the title hopefully will encapsulate some of the struggles we dealt with. And I'm happy to talk about this uh, further in the discussion, but without knowing quite um, who's in the room and what your interest or um, appetite is for semantic Arabic nerdy conversations, um, I, I'll summarize, but I'm happy to come back to this. <clears throat> so the question of title neatly encapsulated this problem. How would we translate the concepts in the title, the politics of Islamic law, local elites, colonial authority, and the making of the Muslim state, to track a movement from the semantic maps of Anglophone scholarship to those in broad use in Arabic scholarship on the same topics? Um, and to give just some examples, um, would we translate politics as um, siyasa, oral jadu? Would we translate Islamic law as sharia, or hukum, or qanun? Would we translate Muslim state as dawlat islamia, or dual al-muslima, or uh, as we eventually decided, uh, dawlat al-muslima? The politics of Islamic law used to the institutional and semantic entanglement of concepts in English to highlight colonial and imperial dynamics in the transformation of Islamic law. So Islamic law, not, not the Sharia, but the institution that emerges out of the colonial encounter. Our basic problem was how to signal these entanglements in translation. For example, the English term authority relates both to origins and to writing and encapsulates a key dynamic in the book, 
the powerful role played by texts and language codification and textualization in the making of the modern state. In English, law, legislation, legibility, and authority are linked in a semantic map. In Arabic, siyasa, qanun, ahkam, and sharia not only do not map in the same ways onto salta, which is the word we settled on for authority, but emerged out of different institutional, colonial, and juridical categories. And as we discussed these translative decisions, we also um, started to have conversations about debates that were live at the moment of publication in Cairo and in Beirut um, in, in, you know, um, in Ar Arabophone um, discussions about Islamic law, um, but also in the mass markets for publication, which the um, publisher was intending to have as a readership. Um, <clears throat> the choices we made had to navigate not only the scholarly semantic maps, but questions of market, questions of readership, and questions of the um, of um, sort of the the economic uh, placement of the text. And inevitably, the final slightly clumsy titular translation reflected that the struggle was and is ongoing. But in the course of that conversation, another translative question emerged that had to do with the political moment of its Arabic publication when our universe of terms was overtaken by events. Each of us choices of possible terms mapped onto yet other semantic maps, <coughs> not of our choosing, related on the one hand to an unwanted, inaccurate and potentially inconvenient allusion to ISIS, Dalat Islamia versus Dalat or Muslima became a live issue. And on the other, to regimes of monitoring and censorship of debate um, on religion and politics at the time and place of publication. In other words, making a choice between taqneen, um, a sharia, the legislation um, of the sharia, as opposed to merely using the word Sharia unqualified, placed us in different kinds of um, regimes of um, censorship, of licensing, of control, and of um, adjudication by the state. And the work of publishing this book entailed both risk and legal hazard, not for me, um, but for the publishing house and the translators themselves. And the work itself undertaken by scholars in precarious positions, not just in the region, but also in exile. Um, and I'm happy again to talk about this more in, um, in question and answer. The, the second movement um, of this talk goes back to the text of the book um, and um, discusses uh, the making of colonial legibility, not as um, semantic translation, <clears throat> not as relationships between words and texts, but relationships between texts and institutions and the ways in which um, translative praxis um, by actors within, working within the colonial courts um, made legibility between these texts and institutions and the courts themselves. And so I reference um, a case, um, an 1885 case called Queen Empress versus Ramzan and others. And it's a case that revolved around questions of how to define a Muslim and who had the right to do so. 
And it's a case that bears the classic hallmarks of colonial processes of state making, the work of defining subjects of colonial authority, of labeling targets of administrative intervention, and of arranging them according to a predetermined hierarchy of value aimed at the production of social and political order for the colonial state. The judgment, which was issued by Judge Saeed Mahmoud, the first Indian Muslim to be appointed to a high court judgeship in British India, shed some light on how Muslim elites navigated colonial institutions of mm -hmm. law to bring Sharia content back into the system. These elites actively participated in new institutions of colonial law, British colonial law, and their presence provided a visible signal of the legitimacy and justice of the colonial state at the same time that their actions within these institutions continue to negotiate the state's boundaries. <coughs> the judgment um, in its decision-making, the, the, the details of the judgment itself and the case itself are beyond the scope of, of my time, but um, the judgment referred repeatedly um, to a category the judge called Mohammedan ecclesiastical law and to four orthodox schools of Mohammedan ecclesiastical law, equating Sunni jurisprudence fiqh, with the law of the church. It referred to mosques as having congregations and being consecrated. <clears throat> it compared Muslim prayers with the reading of the Nicene Creed in attempting to determine whether the alleged offenses in the case were committed during worship or outside of it. It referenced um, the use of the word amin, um, amen, to close worship as a convention adopted in prayers by Mohammedans as much as by Christians. These are quotes from the judgment itself. The judge's arguments about the relationship between authoritative Islamic texts, Muslim practice and orthodoxy were based on an assumption, <clears throat> an assumption he was making and constructing that Islam would be comparable to Christianity, Anglicanism in particular, and that his audience would be persuaded to his point of view more readily if they understood this comparability. Cases such as these allow a closer look at the involvement of local agents in epistemic and political processes, delineating processes through which the state sought to produce comparability and ubiquity across its domains, and suggesting that these processes were themselves translative and comparative, dialogical rather than unidirectional. And so whereas an earlier replacement of jurisprudential experts with legal texts in colonial law courts might have served to reify Islamic law into a limited and somewhat static domain in um, British India, Muslim lawyers and judges working in the colonial law courts in the late 19th and early 20th centuries found ways of turning this particular reliance on text and precedent to their advantage. <clears throat> Ultimately, British trained lawyers and judges such as Judge Said Mahmoud, working within the system to enlarge the jurisdiction of Islamic law as they read it, would bring about a system of law that prioritized canonical text over learned debate, that would prioritize precedent over judicial reasoning, and that would locate the proper domain of Islam over a narrower area of family law and ritual matters. This is what Michael Anderson has called scripturalist Islam, um, translating Islamic legal institutions, logics and texts into the idiom of Anglican Christianity and Islamic law into the language and order of common law, 
in time helping to answer an expectation amongst British judges and jurists that Islam in a Muslim state could occupy the same place as Christianity in England. And so as conflicts in the courts over the proper interpretation of Islam continued in British India, the effort to communicate Islamic law and Muslim practice as comparable to and legible in terms of Christianity also contributed to an understanding of the religions of British India as occupying similar spheres of life <clears throat> and representing equivalent confessional communities. This last movement changes scale and moves from thinking about the making of legibility within a colonial state to the making of legibility between imperial um, legal orders and goes from India um, to Egypt. In India in the 1770s, um, personal law referred to differential jurisdictions. Laws applied depending upon membership in religious communities, Hindu law for Hindus, Muslim laws for Muslims. Assumptions made by East India Company officials in the Hastings Plan of 1772, for example, that Muslim law would be applied to Muslims, I quote, in all suits regarding inheritance, marriage, caste, and other religious usages or institutions, end quote, would by the end of the 19th century become part of the construction of a domain of Muslim personal law <clears throat> that Indian Muslims would defend as authentic and privileged. The colonial category of personal status law, law applying to subjects based on confessional identity, became conflated in British India with a domain of Islamic law first defined by the colonial state, but later taken on and expanded by Muslim elites themselves, laws of marriage, family and ritual observance. And this conflation further reinforced delineations of public and private domains in the administration of law and the governance of religion, such that the private would overlap with the religious and the religious with the communal. In 19th century Egypt, <clears throat> um, played a crucial and generative role in furthering a sense of universally legible categories of life and law through the comparative and translative mechanisms of empire. In 1880s Egypt, Ottoman ideas of Millet French ideas of statut personnel and British colonial personal law seem to have all come together in the Arabic um, translation of personal status, which bound the con concept of personal status, family law and the Sharia to the logic of modernizing and reforming law. And so by the time the formulation was instituted in e Egypt in 1880, as al-ahkam al-sharia fi um, the personal in personal law carried two meanings. The first tied to communal affiliation and the second to the individual as a unit of administrative control. What the Ramzan ju judgment signaled then in India in um, 1885, the strategy of making legibility through institutional translation between colonial subjects and the colonial state had a correlate between imperial subjects and states resulting in the emergence of a lexicon of supposedly universal categories of law, inter-imperial categories of law, such as personal status, despite their very particular historical origins. These vignettes don't aim at a systematic or chronological treatment of translation as praxis. 
but they're intended to serve as illustrations that translation at pra as praxis might suggest we look neither for fidelity of meaning nor legibility through context, but for meaning-making in struggle, in competition amidst violence. And as a range of scholars working on textual transformations, mobility and authority, um, from Brinkley-Messick, for example, to Ronit Ritchie, have shown these dynamics can neither be neatly encapsulated as strategies of either resistance or accommodation, nor do they occupy either center or margin in relation to Islamic institutions. And of course, this has implications in our current moment for solidarity um, in the midst of both forced mobility and immobility, something I'll move to next, but might properly be dealt with in discussion. Analytically, what might this suggest for Islamic legal studies and its related fields? One suggestion is that in assuming the ubiquity of translation, we also consider that translation works to make meaning and legibility to multiple audiences, which then also entails the productive uses of resonance, of ambiguity, of words and terms being pulled by the gravity of events from one semantic map to another. What do the gravity of current events imply for the place of translation in Islamic legal studies, not as analytic practice, but as scholarly practice, as practices of collegiality and work? The destruction of some institutions that sustain semantic maps, the movement of scholars in diaspora and exile casts a different light on translation. And the historic role played by colonialism, empire and violence in making translation ubiquitous in Islamic legal studies. How might we read a translation differently if we sought out alongside its semantic connections, its efforts at making legibility across power differentials its potential for imperial conflations, its multiple and sometimes fugitive audiences and appeals. For me, um, considering these questions as a core component of scholarship on Islamic law in circulation presents a way to make visible, not just meanings at their origin, but at their destination. To make visible, not just binaries of departure and arrival, but the manner in which the material and semantic logics of Islamic legal circulation contain and are themselves altered by mobility. And to make visible last of all, but perhaps equally importantly, not just the work of translation in time and space, but the people whose work it was, their mobility strategies and struggle. 